Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by Terry Teachout for yet another conversation, our 10th conversation, I believe, about noir and noir-adjacent, and in this case, neo-noir and homage movies, because today we're talking about Chinatown. We're talking about Roman Polanski and Robert Town. We're talking about the foundation of Los Angeles and also what happened to Hollywood, what kind of movie is this and where it fits. We are already in modern Hollywood. This is 1974. The new Hollywood has created an entire new class of directors, of stars, a new world. And this movie is both typical and the epitome of that new Hollywood. It was nominated for some 11 Oscars, every important category, editor and cinematographer, along with director, writer, the actors, and of course, best picture. The score was nominated. It only won one. Robert Towns' script won the Oscar, but such a reception on the part of the Academy suggests that people thought this is Hollywood. This is what it is that we're supposed to be in the business of making. Yes, it's interesting the cusp that it stands on in terms of casting. Two of the stars, Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, are quintessential new Hollywood figures. And the third star, John Huston, is one of the greatest directors of old Hollywood, who is appearing in an on-screen dramatic role in this film. This is really a film that looks backward and forwards to an extraordinary degree, I think especially for that particular moment in Hollywood history. I mean, it signals its backward look from the very first frames. The main titles, which are shot in Academy Ratio, are a color, but a deliberate recollection of what main titles looked like in the 30s and 40s, right from the studio credits onto the whole title sequence. It's startling. And I think now that we're more into the idea of homage in neo-noir and neo-films in general, this doesn't strike us quite as forcibly as it must have come across back in the mid-70s when those titles came up on the screen and people must have said to themselves, what is it that we're about to see? Yes, indeed. This was not based on any of the many, many novels or movies or other productions of the 30s and 40s of old Hollywood, but written from scratch by Robert Town, with Polanski forcing him into rewrites to produce the final masterpiece of genre. But it's consciously trying to get everything right, and to get everything right in terms of glamour at the same time. And more generally in terms of design, because one thing that you notice in this film is that the period detail is correct. It's not ostentatious as it might be in a neo-noir film, say Body Heat, something like that. It is intended to look like a color version of what Los Angeles and the things in Los Angeles and the people in Los Angeles looked like in the 30s. I mean, even the newspapers that you see in the cutaways are all meticulously designed in period style, something that is almost always a falling down place for contemporary films. They get them right. The small character roles in this film, the coroner, or the kid who handles the plat books, they're all cast also in a very old-fashioned way. They're played by strong character actors who, even though they have only very brief parts, nevertheless make a deep impression what you would have expected to see in Hollywood when the contract players were so easy to get that the films had a real depth of casting. And there are some specific homage touches in it, too. The guy that you see at the very beginning of the film, Curly, whose wife is cheating on him, he comes back at the end of the film. 
he allows Jack Nicholson to make his getaway to Chinatown. Well, that's double indemnity. That's the guy who tortured his own truck. I'm sure that that was a very specific nod to the film that made film noir in the same way that Chinatown really made neo-noir. And yet, this is not just a straight homage. If you want to know what a straight homage would look like, look at Farewell, My Lovely. A very good film that came out at the same time with an actor of equal stature, Robert Mitchum, extremely high quality. But it's stylized. It's seen through a scrim. It's meant to evoke the old days, but in a romantic way. Chinatown is not a romantic film. It's a realistic film. And I think that that explains why Jack Nicholson's performance lands in the way that it does. He's made up correctly. He's dressed correctly. But when you watch him on the screen, you feel very subtly as though he has stepped into the past from the present. And this is partly just a matter of the way he acts, but it's partly also a matter of the fact that he's Jack Nicholson. Right at that moment in film history, he was one of the hottest actors of the new Hollywood. Uh, We recognized him for The Last Detail. We recognized him for Five Easy Pieces, for these films that are distinctively, characteristically evocative of a new way. And so we cannot see him as being like Robert Mitchum. He is our representative who steps into the world of Chinatown from the world of the present and whose presence in the film is telling us, just as Faye Dunaway's presence tells us, what we are seeing is relevant to the way we live now. Yeah. And that's a big part of the force of the film. There's a lot to be said for what the 70s added. There's a dark national mood a certain interest in revealing dark origins, in reappraising the past, and not with a gauzy perspective. Indeed, Nicholson has a certain crassness to him, a certain brute strength. He is by no means a nice guy. There's almost nothing by way of a code of honor, as you might have had even in a gangster picture in the 30s. Yeah, that word crassness, the crassness is exactly right. He tells and is allowed to tell all of a dirty joke on screen. It is the introduction of Faye Dunaway into the film. That is as far away from being an old-fashioned film noir gesture as you could possibly get. I won't say it's shocking. It takes a lot more to shock us these days. But again, back then, it would have really surprised anybody who saw it. That the man who, so far as we know at this point in the film, is going to be its protagonist, its hero, talks like that and acts like that. Not like Philip Marlowe, whom we always know is going to be the knight errant. Uh, Not like the various Robert Mitchum film noir characters who we all know are doomed losers. But somebody really different from anything that we're accustomed to seeing. And I'll tell you something else that I noticed. I watched Chinatown a couple of days ago for the first time in a few years. And I've been screening for this podcast a lot of film noir over the past year or so. And one thing that struck me forcibly watching Chinatown this time is that while the dialogue is, of course, beautifully, it is not self-consciously snappy in the manner of the film noir or the hard-boiled mystery novel, the Chandler novels. It doesn't contain those sharp, quotable wisecracks that you go away from the film wanting to quote. It doesn't contain bits like the how fast was I going officer bit from Double Indemnity. There's nothing like that in there. The dialogue in this film is naturalistic, just like the performances are naturalistic, just like the setting is naturalistic. It's strange to think of a neo-noir film as being essentially realistic. And yet I think that's the only possible word that you can use for Chinatown. 
And it's that grounding in realism that makes the terrible, terrible ending of this film to be completely believable. The fact that we have led up to it in a way that says to us, this is what the world is like. You're not escaping into a fantasy. You're seeing something that is relevant to the present day world. So if Chinatown isn't like a film noir in these ways, what is it like? And again, as I watched the film a few days ago, I was struck for the first time ever by certain similarities between Chinatown and another very great film, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Not obvious ones, not blatant ones, not an homage, more a matter of method. You look, for example, at the surveillance sequences when Jack Nicholson is tracking down the woman whom he believes to be Faye Dunaway. The pacing is very unhurried. A lot of those scenes play in the clear with no dialogue at all. And Jerry Goldsmith's music, which we'll talk about more later, fills some, but not all of the spaces. Everything is shown, nothing is told. You don't have tell scenes. Look at the running time and you start to see how this is possible. Chinatown is 131 minutes long. It doesn't feel like it, but it is. As opposed to, say, Double Indemnity, which is 107 minutes long. Or any one of the film noir, sort of second-generation films from the 50s, which typically run between 70 and 85 minutes. There's a lot of extra elbow room in this film. There is room to explain the very complicated plot. There is room for atmosphere. There is room for everything to be worked out so that you don't need a tell scene at the end where the detective stands up in front of a room full of people and explains what happened. You know what happened. All you need is Houston's explaining the water plot. And that's a very simple explanation. That's the world of Vertigo. And above all, the greatest similarity between these two films is the way they end. They end with a scene in which we are in no doubt that the protagonists are dead. They're spiritually dead. They have not been able to turn from the path of total knowledge. And in a film like this, a tragic film, and Chinatown is a tragic film, when you go down the path of total knowledge, somebody has to die at the end, either literally or spiritually or both. And that's why it was impossible to do a sequel to this film, and it should never have been contemplated. The Two Jakes was still born from the beginning, because after such knowledge, there is no possible future for J.J. Giddes. And hence, the most important line in the film is the one that's spoken to Houston towards the end, where he says, you know, what is it that you want? How can you live better? What are you looking for? Nicholson says to him. And Houston says, the future, Mr. Giddes, the future. Well, Jake Giddes doesn't have a future. And he's going to find that out in the last two minutes of this film. And they take him away with him mumbling to himself as little as possible. No matter what he does, whether he kills himself or I was also thinking that he might end up like one of those Randolph Scott characters at the end of the films he does with Bud Bedecker, who wanders forever in the wilderness. Uh, all he can do is try to find somebody who's been stranded there, try to do what little good he can do. But his own life is effectively over. This is not the world of traditional film noir. It's much more Hitchcockian, although this is not a Hitchcock homage. Uh, it's a film that does its own thing in its own way, and it's kind of disguised as an homage, but it's something much more complex and deep. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It's far closer to tragedy. It combines artistry, a lot of talent behind the camera, not just in front of the camera. 
with psychological depth and it is often disguised just as often put in plain sight much like vertigo it's a movie you need to see a couple of times to start noticing things you need to know that the shock is coming and then new riches are revealed that you could not have anticipated it repays multiple viewing i mean not like kansas city confidential for example which is a wonderful movie of its kind <laughs> But, you know, you don't get anything more out of it the second time. It's just high-class, low-price entertainment. This film is an onion that when peeled, there's more onion beneath, only it's different. Yeah, and each layer stings the eye. It's a combination of beauty and ugliness, like Jake Giddies, who dresses in shockingly expensive suits, rarely well-tailored. The costume design nomination was certainly well-deserved. But he's as crass as we know from this joke he tells. He's peeping Tom professionally. He is a divorce detective. This strange combination he presents to everybody as I make an honest living. He has a bellicose attitude because he knows that his respectability is actually very questionable. And yes. at the same time, he wants to present himself as a realist, someone who knows, someone who can't be suckered. And nevertheless, the story is there to say that this man with these strengths and with this bellicosity is nowhere near the truth about how bad things are. He's nowhere near the realism he effects. He affects and effects. He does learn in the end, and the learning indeed proves to be too much for him. Yeah, that brings us back to what we've talked about in these podcasts as the quintessential aspect of film noir, that it entails moral choice, a choice that goes wrong and that destroys in some way or other the principal character. In a sense, Giddes has already made this choice when the film starts. He's a divorce detective. He is, as you say, crass. He'll do pretty much anything for a buck. And yet, when he walks into the world of the film, and although he doesn't know it at first, he falls in love with Mrs. Mulray, he is presented with what he thinks is an opportunity, I think, how I interpret it. He has a chance to regenerate himself. He knows what he's become, and he can become better. He can become better by saving her, by saving the girl who is her sister and her daughter at the same time, and by vanquishing John Houston, who is a spectacular villain. What he doesn't know is that he can't win with his choice. And that's a very noirish situation. The deck is already stacked. That's not at all unlike the film noir paradigm. A choice is being made. It's a choice that, since this is a tragedy, he can't help, he can't resist the desire for total knowledge. And that's what destroys him. That's what dooms him. And it doesn't just doom him, it dooms her too. Because she signals to him. She tells him, just give me a little bit of a chance. Give me a little bit of time. You know, she tells him, if you go this way, something terrible is going to happen. And he could stop. He could absolutely stop. There's no necessity for him to. She loves him. He quite clearly loves her. They could make some kind of life for themselves. You know, I mean, you can imagine that in a hypothetical world. But he cannot stop himself because he is strapped to Ixion's wheel of tragedy. And so he has the choice that is not a choice. Yes, exactly. It appears as a choice so that he can feel like the manly man he wants to be, that he acts on his own decisions. He makes up his own mind and acts on that, not on any exterior compulsion. But in fact, of course, he acts morally on her behalf. He feels he has a right to this. He is an incredibly jealous and possessive man of her, and that is tied up with his unusual powers and his unusual willingness to go beyond respectability in order to do harm, but also help. 
in this case he really and honestly wants to save her the more he realizes she's in trouble but at the same time he needs to feel that he can save her that he has that power that is to say that what he's good at snooping being a spy violating privacy is good that it can be used for the good and that it is in his power to do so he can purify it Exactly. As yeah. the, the way in which he's damaged goods because of the past he doesn't quite want to bring up, and the way in which she's damaged goods because of horrifying past that he forces out of her could somehow match, and then they would be good together. And as you suggest, they do have these brief moments when you see, if not vulnerability, then at least a certain humanity. For once, Jack Nicholson, if he's annoyed, he's not calculating the angles. He really just does want a minute of peace is more humane than you would see him otherwise and she is not hiding and she is not afraid for once and not guarded but they are very fleeting moments because she is driven on by fear and he is driven on by the obsession with finding out the truth about her as though this revealing of knowledge this strange gift he has for violating privacy so that it ends up on the front page of the paper is going to lead to some happy end but it won't some private things should maybe just not be published. Yeah, which brings us to John Huston, a very unusual and dangerous piece of casting. He has the actor's gifts, but he's not a full-time actor by any means. And I remember when I first saw this film, which was maybe, I don't know, a year or two after it came out, I thought to myself, come on, give me a break. This is a performance. He's just putting on a show. He's having fun. It took me a while took me more than one viewing to realize that what I had initially thought at first was an overripe performance was really exactly right in a very particular kind of way, an operatic way. Only a very big man, both physically and spiritually, so to speak, can be capable of the kind of monstrousness that Houston's character exhibits in this film and explains, tries to justify in this film. One of the few tell moments in Chinatown is when he tells Jack Nicholson, you know, we're all capable of this. You don't know what it's like to be tempted in that way. We can all fall victim to it. He, too, has fallen victim. And at the very end of the film, of course, he triumphs at the cost of the loss of his daughter. But he takes away the girl. He's shielding her eyes. That's the last moment we see him. He's got a bullet in him, but he's going to live. And he's got his hands over her eyes saying, don't look. And just as you know that Nicholson is going to go off to some kind of spiritual death, you have to ask yourself, what is this girl's future? Will John Houston overcome his evil? Will he do it all again? There is just no knowing. You couldn't have gotten that from, I'm thinking the kind of actor who might have been more conventionally cast in this role. Burl Ives, just to pick one right off the top of my head, the big, horrible uh, Hollywood Tennessee Williams type character. He wouldn't have had anything like the richness and depth that Houston brings to this performance. I mean, once you accept the premise, which is that Houston is a great operatic villain, you can't buy anything less than that. And the more I see the film, the more I live with it, the, the surer I am that this is the masterstroke of casting in Chinatown. There are other people who, who could have played the Faye Dunaway role. There are probably other people who could have played the Jack Nicholson role. I can't think of anybody else who could have played the John Houston role. Uh, he was absolutely ideal for it. 
yeah, he is the core of the movie because he puts together a very personal problem with a very political problem. How was LA founded? On what is based the prosperity, the power of the new second city of America and of course of Hollywood and the Dream Factory? There's this man who has grand ambition, the only guy who's really thinking about the future, but at the same time, because he's thinking about the future, he's thinking about his own mortality. It seems that is why he wants to take this girl that had been hidden from him, and that is why he's willing to risk his own life, and that is why he's willing to do all these horrifying murders. That's what it takes to get the future you want, but also for him personally to deal with his own mortality. Part of what makes him evil is that he has forgiven himself. It's a strangely modern idea, you can forgive yourself. Mm. But on the other hand, it's the fact that he won't let anything stop him precisely because he knows that eventually it all must stop. He wants to get as much done and not take no for an answer and in a way never say no to himself. Either the lust that turned him to incest or the desire to own Los Angeles that has turned him into such a murderer. He's always got a reason. He's always got enough of a reason to convince himself that this is acceptable behavior. And you know, we would feel all of this, even if you came to Chinatown not knowing who John Houston was in real life. The performance is that good. But as soon as you realize who it is, that this is the man who wrote and directed the Maltese Falcon and the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, some of the greatest and most powerfully morally oriented films in Hollywood's history, and who will make a film out of wise blood later on you suddenly realize there is, to use a film theory word, there's an extra diegetical aspect of his performance. He's not just the actor playing the role on scene. He is John Huston, who in his own persona represents Hollywood and its traditional meaning in exactly the same way that Jack Nicholson, the actor, is not just performing as J.J. Giddes, but represents the new Hollywood that is transforming the way that the old Hollywood worked that is transforming the way of John Houston. Yeah. And of course, in the world of the film, the production is that the old Hollywood will, will win. Yeah, when you see them on screen, all of a sudden, Jack Nicholson, by all accounts, one of the top three, five actors of the modern era, seems small. He has yeah, phys- even physically tour. small, yeah. And, and yes, indeed. John Houston is not a scene stealer, but he does dominate everything quite quietly with his gestures. When he listens with his eyes closed, Everything he does suggests that there's great power within him. He's a man of rare ability. Jagiris is an interesting protagonist and is somehow fit for America because he's close to an everyman. This other guy is so interesting because he's not like the rest of us. He really is an aristocrat. He really is a creature on a far larger scale with strange ambitions and who not only can't take no for an answer but can't say no to himself either. You know, Jay Giddes has to put up with stuff like the rest of us do, with misery, you know, with that, failure, with a, whatever, not this guy. It's a tribute to Nicholson's intelligence, because he was a big enough star when Chinatown was made that he could have had Houston replaced. He could have had the script rewritten in such a way as to make him look bigger. He could have been made to look bigger in the scenes where they shared the screen. I'll give you an example of that. Just the other night, I was watching Edward Dimitri's film of the K-Mutiny. Humphrey Bogart is Captain Quig in that film. There are a number of scenes where Bogart shares the frame with much taller people. Fred McMurray is one of them. 
Usually, when Bogart was in a scene like this, he would make sure that he didn't look as short as he was. But he let himself look short in the Cane Mutiny. And the reason I'm sure for this is because he was a very intelligent man and he knew that Quig would be more convincing because of his mental disorder if he looked short. And I think surely Jack Nicholson realized he's playing opposite John Huston. And the way to make this film best is for him to look like that to be dwarfed by this great blimp of an operatic basso in whose face no good can possibly prevail. You can say a lot of bad things about Jack Nicholson, and he made a lot of wrong choices in his career, but there's not a single wrong choice in this film, and one of them is the negative choice of his allowing himself to look quite mortal, not like a hero at all in Chinatown. Yeah. That's the choice of a real actor, a serious actor. Yes, it's so well done that he doesn't affect any of that grandeur. He doesn't try to compete in any way whatsoever, but he tries to convey there especially, but also then you begin to see it in many other places, a certain sense of caged smallness of an animal that has to fight his way out of things, that he's got a lot stacked against him. He's not Superman by any stretch of the imagination. He's n there, there's not a lot of reason to believe that he'll prevail. He's not a man without resources, but he's up against something so big, he always seems a bit small. He always seems a bit harassed. The scene when he gets his nose cut by Roman Polanski, no less. The, the first thing you notice about this is this is a guy who can be held. Uh, when the thugs move in on him, they pin him. He's not going to pull out a gun. He's not going to be able to do anything. He's stuck. And then this totally nasty little creature who just happens to be played by the director of the film, uh, slits his nostril. An absolutely horrifying scene. Uh, the first time you see it, you don't believe what you're seeing. And even on repeated viewings, it still has the power to shock. Uh, and yet this is, this is something that Jake Giddes can't prevent, and it's something for which he takes no revenge. He's not able to. He loses to everybody in the end. Everybody. Yeah. There's a, and then of course, then he's got the uh, the bandage on his face that will mark him for the rest of the movie. He's very vulnerable, and he has few things up his sleeve, but he cannot help himself. He should have taken no for an answer and just not keep trying. When people are willing to be this nasty, so unpredictable and gratuitously, well, maybe you should get a hint, but he doesn't. He's, he hopes against hope that if he's just clever enough, if he puts enough clues together in a picture, if he gets enough guesses right in a sequence, then things are going to be working out. And you can see in, in this weakness, in the fact that other people get to beat him up, in the fact that, you know, he's, and he's beaten up repeatedly. Uh, in the, he wins one fight, and you can see there that he has to... He has to be cleverer and quicker and pull a couple of tricks up his sleeve and because otherwise that bigger guy will whoop him and th there's always this caged anger in him and the fear because he knows he's not much of a fighter he's not much of a uh, you know he doesn't really have good odds and somehow that's connected with why he is erotically available, why he's willing to fall in love in a way, why he can be vulnerable in that way also, and why he hopes that he'll achieve something for once in his life, that he'll do something worthwhile. He's been beaten around by life a lot, and it seems to happen to him constantly. Let there be one good thing, please. 
And notice the way that the love scene is shot. You, you make me think of that. The only possible word I can think of is tact. Uh, that is not a sex scene. I mean, they're in bed together and they don't have clothes on, but there is no display. There is, it, there's nothing of the kind of, the way that you would expect the film to be, to, to show the scene today. It, it's shot with, to use a very old-fashioned word, pudor. Uh, and I think it is because we recognize, we are meant to recognize that this is about love, that he is seeking some kind of redemption for his life, and for the bad thing that he's done to this woman, remember that he betrays her before he even knows her. He wants a way out, and this is why we identify him. He can't get it, and this is why it's a tragedy. Um, uh, and the film doesn't sell us short. Uh, we go all the way to the end and the ultimate disaster. Uh, we are not, uh, and to think that it was Polanski who insisted that the film have an unhappy ending. To think that it was originally going to be written without one, I just that astonishes me. Um, uh, and yet, you know, we can all make mistakes. When you're close to your own material, you you can you can think that it ought to be in a certain way. But uh, we don't quite rightly. We do not think of Roman Polanski as being a man of moral courage. But in the case of of this film alone, he exhibits an artistic, aesthetic form of moral courage in insisting that the film have. Uh, not just an unhappy ending, but a disastrous, terrible ending. Uh, the word terrible gets often gets overused. It is completely appropriate here. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a film full of stories to tell about the talent involved that would, would take us uh, too far beyond our purview, but, but there are strange and, and disturbing things to learn, and and then there is the film itself which indeed as you say shows a certain integrity it took some whacking it into the form in which we find it and uh and then robert town won an oscar against his own will as it were and he eventually had to admit that about this thing polanski was right he did the right thing because he insisted that this should be a tragedy that that's another word we throw around a lot and then of course we get scared something bad happens but on the other hand, if every death ends up being a tragedy, it becomes harder to pay attention to when one actually happens. Mm. And, and so here the movie makes every effort of art to turn us in that direction. It starts in this silly, uh, completely uninteresting uh, uh, scene of a guy, Bert Young, finding out that his wife is traducing him with some enthusiasm, apparently. And, and then this big guy is uh, humiliated and hurt. The, the detective who found this out for him is bored and wants to get rid of him without getting uh, a mess made in his office. There's something so dreary, so lowly about all that. But of course it turns out to, to involve certain fundamental things. Like Jay Giddes thinks too much of his ability to learn things and by exposing things to nevertheless keep himself out of trouble. It might break somebody else's heart or ruin somebody's marriage. We see the effects. I mean, he gets an ally this way, and that guy's wife gets a black eye. There are consequences, but he thinks not for himself. Well, Jake is going to learn that there are consequences for himself, too, with revealing these secrets. But yeah. to begin with, you don't sense any of that moral intensity. There is a crescendo throughout the movie 
partly because we wonder what is the mystery here why do these people keep dying but on the other hand because of the moral intensity displayed by the actor suggests that there are worse and worse things happening that don't seem entirely necessary that these people really need to meet but gradually it turns out that everybody is driven by a passion that he cannot help and and so the more you see the art in the movie the more you see this deep psychological inside that some part of life is tragic yeah the quintessence of tragedy exactly now let's let's talk about something we haven't discussed something that in a sense stands outside the matters we've been discussing but is nevertheless absolutely central to the total appeal of this great film, and that is the musical score. Uh, it is a well-known fact that Chinatown was completely scored by another composer, that the score didn't work, and that Jerry Goldsmith was called in with 10 days to score this film before the tax date hit and the film had to be released. Uh, that's tight. And usually the way that you deal with a situation like that is to be very conventional especially when you've had a score that was thrown out because it was ugly, dissonant, and didn't quite work. Well, nope. Uh, this is one of the most unorthodox film scores ever written, starting with the instrumental lineup. It is scored for one trumpet, four pianos, four harps, two percussionists, and a string section. That sounds like Bernard Herrmann. Or like the sort of ensemble from which you'd expect to hear a piece of avant-garde classical music. And there are parts of this score that are startlingly modern sounding that are actually atonal or use serial techniques. I mean, uh, it's, it's parts of it are really tough. And yet that main title uh, theme, the love theme, this, this sensuous trumpet solo that, that floats over a cushion of tolling harps and brooding strings, uh, uh, which tells us, again, uh, we can't know it yet because we're just starting to see the movie, but it tells us what's going to happen, that this is going to be a love story and it's going to be a doomed story. Uh, the, the trumpet solo was played by Ewan Raisi, who is the, the great Hollywood studio trumpeter. And he later told an interviewer uh, that uh, Goldsmith and his arranger said to him, play that theme sexy, but like it's not good sex. And um, that's, that's just what it sounds like. And yet there's not that much music in the film. In 131 minute film we have 23 minutes of underscoring and yet every single note counts instead of wall-to-wall -wall underscoring which you might well get in a film of the 40s uh, everything is saved for the key moments of the film most of the dialogue is heard in the clear um, when there is no dialogue uh, when the camera is simply exploring or setting up atmosphere uh, Goldsmith sets in and steps in and intensifies the atmosphere. And what you've got in the end, written in 10 days, I'm just shaking my head in amazement at this, is a score so intense, so concentrated, you can, and I have done so often, listened to this score independent of the film with real pleasure, equal pleasure. And yet when you meld it with the film, you get a key element of the success of Chinatown. And you want, you want to talk about the collaborative nature of, of film. Now, Chinatown exemplifies it in two different ways. One is the decision to make an unhappy ending was not made by the writer. The second is that the score was written after the film was shot without consultation with 10 days to go. And yet now that we've, we've got the film and the score, 
you can't imagine one without another. Um, yeah. I guess there are other people who could have scored Chinatown this well. Um, Herman could have, I suppose. But short of that, I don't know who, and I can't imagine. Uh, it, what Chinatown is, it is in significant part because of Jerry Goldsmith's music. Yes, indeed. Especially the love aspect of the movie, it would not come across well otherwise. There is something in the mood that would not be transmitted by what you see, by just the facts, ma'am. Let's call it that version of movie yeah. making. It wouldn't carry enough, especially not with these kinds of characters who have so many secrets and who are harried from sequence to sequence by decisions that happen off screen that we only learn about in retrospect. And so the, the, the need to establish the mood and to, to, to give credibility to the connection between Faye Dunaway and Jack Nicholson's character is overpowering. Lose that one thing and you have lost what holds the movie together and that haunting trumpet therefore is the linchpin. It's not often that you, we can say that about movies, not even when there is a theme that we all love and associate with that movie. Because that's not quite the same thing as uh, being relevant to characterization quite so much. And maybe that means that the script is somehow imperfect and Razy and Goldsmith just came in and saved the day. Even so, it comes to the same thing, that with, uh, it's that important. And they got it right uh, in, in a situation where, as you said, there, there, they could not have second-guessed themselves. There was no time for, for something else. It was either this or nothing, and to come through in such a moment, it's wonderful. Yeah. I, Herman used to say, an arrogant man, except that it was true, that uh, Hitchcock left his films to be finished by Herman. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Hitchcock decided he didn't want to work with Bernard Herman anymore. He didn't want somebody saying that about his films. But how can you not say that about a film like Psycho, uh, with, with, without which, uh, uh, without that score, uh, those scenes wouldn't have landed? Or Vertigo, uh, a film whose total effect in, in exactly the same way as Chinatown, uh, the romanticism is absolutely dependent on the power of the score uh, to unite uh, film image and feeling into a single uh, indissoluble uh, compound. Um, yes, and I would, I would, yeah, this, this and Chinatown score cases, is as good as the Vertigo score, I would say. It, they're certainly comparable, and then down to this uh, matter of only using the music after long silences when it will land, when it will add an entire new layer that is necessary. And, uh, and the movie also, of course, had the uh, a strangely parallel situation in cinematography. A man had to be fired, and uh, very quickly Polanski brought in John Alonzo to film. And in, in the process, they created the, the look of old movies, but especially of old Hollywood, for modern America. The, how we see the, the, the pre-modern era, how we see the era that we would see in black and white movies, was to a significant extent created by their collaboration on Chinatown. And of course, huh. it has been used since everywhere. The, but not shot through a yellow filter like, like Farewell My Lovely is. And I love Farewell My Lovely. I think for what it is, it's, it's a marvelous film. But it's always telling you 
uh, we take a nostalgic view of the past. What Chinatown is telling you is that the past is present. Like Faulkner said, it's not even past. Uh, it's right here. Yeah. So here, here we are talking about this extraordinary film, and we're using words like great and masterpiece, and I think most people do feel that way about Chinatown. And yet I don't see it starting to turn up on the sight and sound polls. I mean, it's, it's, it is greatly admired, and yet it doesn't seem to register as a classic in the way that, say, The Godfather registers as a classic. Um, uh, I'm quite puzzled by that. And it brings me back to a question that I have been asking myself really ever since Chinatown came out. When it came out, you know, John Simon reviewed it in National Review. Uh, Simon, uh, a crotchety critic and somebody who is quite allergic to taking genre film seriously, uh, but also a critic of enormously high standards and seriousness. And he took Chinatown very, very seriously. Now, he thought it was as good as a genre picture could be and that in many ways it, it, it equaled in quality uh, the force of what he would have called like as a serious picture. And yet at the end of his review, and I want to read this because it's absolutely to the point. He says, the final question is whether a mystery film, however concerned with moral climate and psychological overtones, can transcend its genre. These people are much more vulnerable than their genre antecedents which is what ultimately makes for Chinatown's originality and distinction. Still, the hold of the genre is so strong that even with sensational plot twists kept at a minimum, there simply isn't room enough for full character development for the richer humanity required by art. As I say, that was written right after the film came out, and I, I find myself still asking this question decades later. How good is Chinatown compared not to uh, Out of the Past, not to Double Identity, not even to Vertigo, which we've now pretty much accepted as a major film of real seriousness. How, how, good, is it, how good is it compared to something by Jean Renoir or Ophuls? Uh, how good is it compared to that kind of film, which attempts to tell a story about human beings? Um, and I must tell you, I don't know. Even now, I cannot decide. There is a part of me that, that wants to say, oh, come on. I mean, if this isn't a great film, what is a great film? Uh, I mean, look at the films that, that were nominated for Best Picture Oscars, along with Chinatown, the year that it came out. You pulled that list up. Why don't you share it for us? Yes, indeed. Um, it, it, it's worth bringing up because it lost both Best Director and Best Picture to The Godfather Part Two, Francis Ford Coppola. The same year, The Conversation, another Coppola picture, The Towering Inferno, which is not a picture we remember very well, or other directors beyond Coppola, the great French Francois Truffaut, but also Bob Fosse and John Cassavetes, New Hollywood in a vein that has none of the sweeping ambition or of the almost epic, tragic feel of Chinatown. It's somehow in between. It's not quite the godfather, as you suggested before, but it's certainly far larger and more powerful than most of what New Hollywood or what cinema since has been. It's maybe on the cusp 
of having the grandeur of the Godfather, but not quite there. But the difference is not... It's not a great difference. They are both no. high achievements. And it does what the Godfather does, which is to try to tell us something about America, what America is like, what we want, uh, what our, our, our goals are, what our culture is. Uh, it has that level of ambition to it. The critical discourse has changed enormously, of course, uh, since the 70s when, when Chinatown came out. Uh, most people now take it for granted that, that genre storytelling is of equal seriousness to any other kind of storytelling. And Hollywood doesn't make movies like Chinatown anymore. Uh, now it makes franchise movies and pretty much nothing else. Um, uh, the, the, the ambitious dramatic movie of the kind that whose existence was taken for granted in the mid seventies essentially no longer exists. Um, and that makes it, I think hard in a different way to, to ask this question, how good is Chinatown? If you are comparing it with the rules of the game, I think the answer has to be, it's not that good. But if you're comparing it with, I know, Vertigo, um, I think the answer is it is that good. Um, if you're comparing it to The Godfather, I think the answer is it is that good. Um, and I think we are right nowadays to feel, as Simon did not, that genre filmmaking can make serious statements about human life and human nature, uh, statements that, that don't lack for seriousness and resonance. Um, I don't think they shoot quite as high, but now that nobody's shooting high at all, I mean, now that, that our movies are all Disney movies, um, we can't help but look back at Chinatown and say, you know, what does this lack? What, what is missing in it? Why are we not uh, voting for it in the, uh, uh, the sight and sound polls? I don't know the answer to that at all. Uh, and I, I don't know that it matters anymore. Uh, I think we basically now have to judge this, this movie for what it is. Uh, it is certainly um, one of the half, I, I, I'll go this far, I think it's one of the half dozen greatest movies to be made in America in the post-war era. Yes. Um, I, I don't see how you can fail to, to judge it like that uh, in Hollywood. I mean, you, you, that's, it's that good. I came back to it last week, as I mentioned, after not having looked at it for a number of years. And I was completely caught up in a movie that I knew so well that I know half the dialogue and can do the line readings. It is that familiar to me. And yet it is still beautiful and it is still powerful and moving. And I fear to say true. Uh, we, we don't want this interpretation of America to be true. But it is hard not to watch the film uh, in the present moment and feel that it isn't true. Um, yeah, it has we, a strange power of persuasion that is uh, should not at all be neglected. I uh, indeed it has in, in a certain way doesn't have the depth of character that we would want by comparison with the the novel specifically from the 19th right. century. But on the other hand, through genre we see American history and the revision of Hollywood itself 
And that is a level of sophistication worth appreciating, even though we savor it as entertainment. But further, it does have, because of its interest in American history and in who we are, to, to, to persuade us, to show us, to make us feel it and hear it and see it, also has this power that wouldn't appear in art movies, let's call them. It really does feel tragic. It really does feel that this is us. And that conclusion hits. And if it can hit uh, 45 years later, I suggest that uh, the, the, they hit on something very important that we can never quite shake off. It, it does have a rare ambition to ask, what was the foundation really like? Or what are we living with that we have to sweep under the rug? Or we, we're confident that we know that democracy, transparency, accountability, all of these things are great and good things, and indeed they are, And but also that they're enough. But what if sometimes learning the ugly truth is deadly? What if we can't publicize everything? These questions and, and the pow emotional power they gain in the dramatization, they go far beyond genre. They are things that we would talk in the way we would talk academically about uh, tragedy. What does it mean to have this ambition for knowledge, to see everything like Jay Giris does, and in a way, we the audience? Then we would see this other level, and I think it's uh, unambiguous. The, 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 the history and the genre is indeed prob it's strange. It's not great in, in, in the way in which cinema used to be. It's certainly far greater than the small movies or the purely genre franchises we have now. But that middling position by itself would not uh, go so far as what we feel when we see it. Why does it hit so hard? Properly articulated, I think that shows that it does have a claim to greatness. In the, in the things that you're talking about, uh, a comparison to the rules of the game, which I think is the greatest movie ever made, is relevant. Because these are both films that seek, they're, they're films about the way we live now. Um, uh, the, the rules of the game is literally so. It portrays the moment that it was made just before World War II, just before France uh, collapsed under its own weight and was push, push, pushed over by the Nazis. Uh, America at the same time, but we're meant to read it as relevant to the, the present moment, the 70s. Um, and there, these are both films that explore whether the culture they portray might not be a hollow tree something that is empty inside and ready to be pushed over. And uh, Chinatown, for all its genre trappings, does this in an entirely serious way. There is no point in this film that you could point at it and say, this is false, this is shallow, this is Hollywood. Um, uh, it, it's not like that. Um, it, at the very least, Chinatown forces you to think very, very hard about how serious a genre movie can be, what it can say, what it can do. In that respect, it looks directly forward to uh, a film like uh, Goodfellas, say, which is quite self-consciously trying to do the same sort of thing. Uh, one of the things I love best about Chinatown and that I felt even more strongly on this viewing... <laughs> It's unselfconscious. It doesn't posture. It's not a self-conscious homage shot through a yellow filter. It is a story that tells itself in a realistic, direct, powerful way. 
it's not putting on a show. It is, you feel watching it. A, a piece of life, a terrible piece of life, of, of life at its most disastrous. Um, it shows the human potential at its, its most, at its greatest aspiration to, to, to know, to know the truth, and in its greatest failure to be unable to change that truth, to be destroyed by it. Uh, if yes. that's not serious, I don't know what is. Yes, that is very well put. You know, we speak of genre as often a bad thing, not always, but often, on the assumption that to, to be genre means to accept certain authorities that shouldn't simply be accepted. Mm. But I think that with movies like Chinatown, you can see that genre could be understood in reverse to mean to assert the authority of a certain uh, opinion of a certain genre because of what it reveals. To reveal it afresh as the movie shows you the old Hollywood as in new Hollywood as a new fresh experience without the assumptions we were used to and without the reassurances we had acquired along the way but in re-examines the entire case anew and that is a high ambition yeah maybe i don't know we i mentioned raymond uh, raymond uh, randolph scott in passing maybe the searchers is also a relevant point uh, a film made by the man who in some ways created the genre of the modern serious western uh, and yet one which aspires in a larger way to say something larger about the the reality of american character uh, using the, the the biggest actor that Hollywood has ever had, John Wayne, uh, and which everybody agrees pulls itself out of the Western genre onto a higher level, and which is now recognized as such by the Sight and Sound Boys too. You know, so if there's hope for the Searchers, maybe there's hope for Chinatown as well. Indeed, uh, I certainly hope so. This is a movie we have done well to remember, and we will do well to see again and again, and to pass on. It's, uh, we will not run out of things to discover or marvel at, nor no. will we likely become simply too good to have to confront what it reveals about us. Not in this lifetime. <laughs> well, since we've mentioned Hitchcock at length, maybe next time we should go back to the source and uh, perhaps we had mentioned t doing a, a podcast about uh, Shadow of a Doubt. Um, yes. A film that is worth similar consideration. Yes, indeed. And that will be our next podcast. Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. Watch the movies again. And as we said, prepare for the, our next adventure, which will be Shadow of a Doubt. Sir, thank you again for joining me. It's been wonderful talking about this. It's oh, my pleasure, too. And to be able to see Chinatown again. Not yes. that you need an excuse, but it's nice to have one. Yes, indeed. Likewise, just knowing that I'll watch this and then I get to talk to you about it. <laughs> that is uh, an, an, an IU. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much. My pleasure. All the best.